Support for Decoder comes from NetSuite. Here are some numbers all business owners should know for 2024. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash decoder. That's netsuite.com slash decoder to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash decoder. Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Lila Snyder. She's the CEO of Bose. Now, Bose is one of the most recognizable audio brands in the world. It was famous for the wave radio in the 80s when I was a kid. It invented noise cancellation. You can see its logo on NFL sidelines every Sunday. And of course, there are the extremely popular consumer products like the Quiet Comfort headphones. Reviewers like The Verge's Chris Welch say those headphones are some of the best in the entire game. Audio systems in GM, Honda, Hyundai, Porsche, and more are developed and tuned by Bose. But Bose is also a fascinating company. It was founded in 1964 by Dr. Amar Bose, who donated a majority of shares of the company to MIT, where he was a professor. That means to this day, Bose is a private company with no pressure to go public. But Lila still has to compete against big tech for talent and products and for compatibility. See, big companies like Apple and Google and Samsung, Amazon, they're all aggressively chasing audio. And they're creating proprietary headphone systems for their phones and smart assistants. Meanwhile, the car audio market is hyper-competitive, and it's in a period of rapid change as cars become computers. So I wanted to know how Lila was thinking about Bose's dependence on platform vendors like Apple and Google, how she's thinking about standards like Bluetooth, what the limits of her innovation are with all of those forces arrayed against her, and where she thinks she can compete and win against AirPods and other products that get preferential treatment on phones. We also talked a lot about Bose's move into hearing aids. A recent bill signed by President Biden deregulates and opens up the hearing aid market. And Lila has a lot of thoughts about how Bose can participate in that market through partnerships. Lila's also a relatively new CEO for Bose. She's been there for just over two years. So we also talked about how she's changed the company and how she decided to shake up the org chart. I mean, it's decoder, after all. Two notes before we start. One, Lila talks a lot about functional and divisional corporate structures because she shifted Bose from a divisional structure, where every product line had its own complete dedicated team to a functional structure where the company is organized by capabilities like engineering, design, and marketing. Functional versus divisional structures actually come up a lot on Decoder if you're on the lookout for it. They're basically the two ways to organize a company, and CEOs have to choose. We talked about it a lot with Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky as well. That's a really fun episode if you want more. Second, Lila says DSP a lot. That's just digital signal processor. They're the chips that make audio products go. Okay, Lila Snyder, CEO of Bose. Here we go. 
Lila Snyder, I'm the CEO of Bose. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Bose is a fascinating company. It's a household name. It's the speaker brand I aspired to as a teen. It's been around for a long time. It has this really long, really interesting history, but it's also privately held. We don't get a chance to look under the hood of a company like Bose very often. How would you describe Bose today? I think in many ways, Bose is uh, the same and yet very different than it's been the last almost 60 years. So Bose was founded almost 60 years ago by Dr. Bose, professor at MIT. And the, the core of it was innovation. It was, it was meant to be a company that could focus on research and innovation and bring technology to the market that has real impact on customers. The great thing is that part of the company is still alive and well today. That's really at the core of who we are as a culture and as a company. Uh, so in that way, quite the same. Obviously, the first products were speakers, consumer audio, and that's still pretty much what we do today, right? But everything else has changed around it. The market, the competitive set, the technology we're using, obviously, is uh, very different and very much advanced today uh, versus where we started. But there's a lot that's the same, which is pretty exciting. So just that first piece, Dr. Bose, right? He invented some technology. It was Wave. The Wave radio was very famous. It was the Bose product that sort of defined the 80s and 90s. He invented it. There was a patent. He built an entire product portfolio around it. Things have changed dramatically since then. I don't think you still sell wave radios at the rate you used to sell wave radios. <laughs> Is that still the basis of the company, though? We're going to invent some core technology and expand that into a series of product lines, or is it different? Yeah, it's pretty much the same. So uh, we're really focused on, we call them technology franchises, and there are three of them today. They'll probably not surprise you, right? The first one is noise cancellation, right? Bose invented noise cancellation over 20 years ago. Those headsets that we all loved when we got on planes in the late 90s, early 2000s, and still love, right? So we think there's a a ton more about noise cancellation that uh, is to yet be invented. And so, you know, franchise one is noise cancellation, Second one is lifelike, immersive audio, like the artist intended it, right? So the kind of audio that makes you feel like you're hearing what the artist wanted you to hear and you feel immersed in it, in its mood changing and altering and uh, magical. And the third franchise is a little bit different and nuanced and is actually made possible by new technology like AI, which is something we call hearing what you want. And so noise cancellation was this amazing thing that started with just taking away as much of the noise as you possibly could. Hearing what you want is a more nuanced view that says, in some situations, there are noises I want to hear and others that I don't. And how do we use technology, AI in particular, to pick out which sounds you want to hear, and which ones you don't, and automatically make those adjustments for you. So we really focus on those three technology franchises from early research all the way through development and into products. And so it's really those three technologies that differentiate Bose today. And yes, we're still thinking about how do we take those technologies and push them through to different products and experiences for our customers. So... Those are the three, noise cancellation, immersive audio, which I kind of want to push on because there's a lot going on in that space recently. It seems like there's always a lot going on in that space, and it's hard to make that sale historically, but I'm curious about it. And then hearing what you want, which, you know, the FDA has just released some rules about hearing aids. There's a lot of hearing augmentation happening in the world. So those are the three. I do want to talk about them, but I want to start with what I think of as the decoder questions. You're a relatively new CEO there. It's about two years now, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, that's right. How did you end up as CEO of Bose? 
I feel very lucky, actually. You know, it's such an amazing brand, right? If I think about when I first got the call, right, and I first started the process to think about coming to Bose, I anchored on three things that are hard to find in a company, right? One was the innovation culture that I've already talked about, right? It's difficult to create that and having almost 60 years of history of bringing really groundbreaking innovation to the market is pretty amazing. I love that. It's just such a great brand, right? You mentioned your first experience with the brand. My first experience was a wave radio that I saved money to buy when I was in graduate school and I had a tiny apartment and it was just this magical moment, you know, being able to kind of bring that into my home. And and so we all have kind of our first Bose moment, which is pretty exciting. That brand has a ton of power and I think resonates in a unique way with consumers and still does today, obviously. And, you know, what I had learned kind of even through the first couple of conversations is just the the culture and the talent at Bose is just so special that it's a place you want to be, right? It's a an intellectual culture, a smart culture, and, and a passionate culture. And so, you know, those three things are drew me to Bose. I think, you know, my experience that got me here is really all about digital and software transformation and how digital technologies are transforming business. You know, if you kind of draw a thread through everything I've done in my career, that's probably the red thread you would draw through it. And I think that's fundamentally the experience I'm bringing to Bose that's really important. So there's a, there's a big idea embedded in the phrase digital transformation, which I think <laughs> people use that phrase a lot. Whenever I hear it, I just mean we're going to replace a bunch of stuff with computers, right? Software is <laughs> where yep. a bunch of stuff that's happening is now we're going to go from a bunch of mechanical engineers modeling out wave radio baffles to there's a computer. It's going to do some AI stuff and tell you what you want to hear, right? Like that's in a, the broadest sense, what digital transformation means. Is that what you th- think it means? Like, that's what I think it means, but is that your view of it that this company is getting computerized and what it makes now is computers. And that's the the process that you're in charge of managing. I tend to think of it from the customer first and then back, which is, you know, for me, it's how do we use technology to create better experiences for customers, right? And those experiences could be the audio experiences, the noise canceling experiences. You can't get those experiences without hardware, right? So we're just as much a hardware company as we always have been, but it's using software to build sort of the magic around that uh, that really creates new and better and differentiated experiences. And then similarly, you know, how do we use technology to make the customer experience at every touch point better, right? So definitely when you interact with your headphones or your car audio or the speakers in your home, but also, you know, when you interact with us, when you reach out to customer service or you shop on Bose.com or or you interact with Bose in any way. And so I tend to think about, you know, how does technology make the consumer experience better? And then we work backwards. Do you work backwards to fundamentally what you ship as computers now? In a way, right? If you think about, you know, the earbuds I'm wearing or, or, or any, you know, product that you use today, the majority of the experience in a headphone today is being created by software. And that's been true for a while, right? You know, DSP is not a new concept in terms of the way that we create audio products. And so we've been layering software into our products for a very long time. What's happening now is with more compute capability, the sophistication of that software at the edge in my ear is getting more and more sophisticated and allowing us to do things that create better and better experiences. So a great example of that is our QuietComfort earbuds too, which are the ones that I happen to be wearing today. 
they have a technology called custom tune technology. The cool thing about custom tune is noise cancellation since its invention has been an optimization to the average. And so you're optimizing the noise cancellation for the average consumer, and it works pretty well for everyone. But what we realized is the most important thing about sound happens to be geometry, the shape of the room that you're in, and in the case of an earbud, the shape of your ear canal. And so what Custom Tune does and what enables it is the ability to do that compute at the edge is it allows us to play a tone, map your ear canal, and then do a whole lot of math very quickly to customize the noise cancellation and the audio performance to the unique geometry of your ear. That's something that you could have imagined a decade ago, but you couldn't have done because you need the compute power to enable you to do that. So a classic decoder question I ask whenever this sort of idea comes up is once you start shipping computers, you kind of inherit a bunch of computer problems. You get a lot of capability, like <laughs> as you're describing, right? You have the compute, you have a chip small enough and low power enough to do something a custom tune in ear in real time. That's mind blowing if you remember computers long ago. Right now, it's, it, it might be what everyone expects, but I, I agree that that's mind blowing. That means you have to <laughs> issue software updates. It means you have to think about malware potentially. It means you have to have a lot of software engineers. Yep. Almost every hardware company CEO that I've talked to that says they've started shipping software eventually says, oh, we actually have more software engineers than hardware engineers. What's the split at Bose? I don't know the exact split, but we definitely have a lot of software engineers. And I would say there's there's two things that create the magical experiences, right? One is the software that we've been talking about. And our software engineering team has been growing. And yes, our cybersecurity team is growing. And we think about all of those things, of course. The other thing that's really important is sort of the holistic systems engineering of how you position the hardware components to enable the best experience. And so there's still a lot of hardware magic that has to happen to bring that whole system together. But for sure, if you look at the trajectory you know, the mix of our engineers has shifted uh, over time, like everyone else's, and we have a lot of software engineers at Bose. Actually, let's, let's step even one step farther. Here's the other classic decoder question. How are you structured? How does Bose work? It's a great question. It's changed a little bit, actually, probably not surprisingly, since I joined. Uh, oh, don't worry. That was the follow-up question. What have you changed? <laughs> I'll do both at once, just uh, for efficiency's sake. So, at the highest level, we're functionally organized at Bose. But I think what's important in there is why we've chosen to do it that way and how we make sure we maintain a maniacal focus on the customer in a functional organization, right? Which is always the risk if you have a functional organization that you somehow lose sight of the customer and, and then you swing back to a more divisional structure, right? That's the typical um, sort of academic view of things. So at Bose, we've adopted a functional organization. And I think the the final stage of that, which we went through about a year ago, was with our engineering team. And so historically, we had engineering that was more broken up across our different business units. So think about our consumer business versus our automotive business, or even our headphones business and our in-home soundbar and speaker business. We've brought all of that together. And the reason we did that is because the technology franchises that I described earlier, the noise removal, the lifelike audio, hearing what you want, 
those are consistent across every product line that we produce at Bose. Those are the three sort of core elements of each. What we found was we needed to bring more of that together to get more and faster innovation spreading across the company, right? So we've been really excited about the results of that so far. And that's been an exciting transition for us. It's also starting to unlock uh, what we call internally our better together strategy, which is, you know, as we continue to create these little computers that we're putting into the world, how do we make them better together? So you think about a headphone and your in-home soundbar or a headphone as you get into your car. How do those two things that Bose makes how do we make those work better together so that when you have an experience, when you have both of those products, we can create a better experience for you as they come together. That's almost impossible to do if you're working in a more uh, product-oriented or siloed manner. So bringing all of our research and development and engineering talent into one organization is just creating a mushroom effect on the ideas and the possibilities that we can create at those intersections, which is really exciting. So that's sort of one big change that we've made and probably the final push into a you know truly functional organization. The other is probably from a product standpoint, you know, hardware companies and uh, certainly Bose, you know, Dr. Bose was such a renaissance founder, as many founders are, right? He, he really was the chief engineer, he was the chief product officer, and he was the chief marketing officer. He sort of played all of those roles. And uh, over time, you know, as he moved away from the company and, you know, leadership changed, it really became an engineering-led culture, not surprisingly. But in the world we live in today, having strong product leadership is so critical to make sure you're getting the experiences right that drive the technical work. And you kind of have this push-pull between a product organization that is creating the vision for what the consumer needs and a very strong research and engineering culture that is bringing forth great new technology, almost, you know, that those product leaders can shop from. It's pretty exciting. And so one of the changes we've made is to really strengthen uh, our product organizations with a chief product officer over all of our consumer audio products. And then on the automotive side as well, having someone who leads that automotive team as well. So that that sort of moving to a functional structure, but still keeping that close alignment with the uh, with the customer. So Bose was started well before Silicon Valley product management had defined itself. Now, Silicon Valley product management, it's it's like a cliche. It's like how every company wants to run because Google happens to be uh, a huge, rich company. Is that what you and I don't mean to denigrate it. I think there's great value in having product managers and designers and engineers all working together. But that way of working has become basically dominant since the big companies have become dominant. It's not the only way of working. Is that the way that you've adopted? You're saying, okay, we're going to do product managers and chief product officers, and we're going to have an engineering organization that works with them in cross-functional teams, because that can't be how both started, because this way of working is maybe 25 years old at most. Yeah, it is. And we are definitely moving in that direction. I think what I like is that we've got this really great push and pull between product and engineering, right? So I think for some organizations, you sort of create a hierarchy and you say one of those organizations tells the other one, you know, kind of what to do. 
ours is much more of a partnership, which I think really works well for us because you've got, if you're too product led and you're too focused on, you know, driving, you don't look far enough into the future. The great thing about researchers is that they're not thinking about tomorrow or next year. They're thinking pretty far in the future. And so, you know, you get this dynamic where we're creating a cross-functional team that's got product representation and design and marketing and research and development. And it's the diversity of thought that those different disciplines bring together, which is what we we believe is really pushing our thinking on the kinds of products and experiences that we can deliver to customers. And so I think it's not one or the other. It's sort of that the diversity of that group and the diversity of the thinking that you bring together, which is where we create real disruptive new innovation. So is that the change you've made as a CEO? We're going to go to a functional structure. We're going to build cross-functional product teams. It's a piece of it for sure. Yeah. What are the other changes you've made? I think that we're thinking about marketing very differently at Bose. So the first hire I made when I joined Bose was uh, Jim Mollica, who's our chief marketing officer. He's actually the first chief marketing officer that Bose has ever had which I find to be a remarkable statistic given how powerful the Bose brand is. The Bose brand was built through remarkable products, right? And decades of high quality audio experiences that consumers were having either in their car or in their home or you know, increasingly on the go with headphones and wearables. And so marketing has changed a lot. And that felt like a place where we needed to invest to bring our marketing capability to a different level. And so if you sort of look at what we're doing today, we're doubling down on this idea that Bose is all about sound. We talk internally about the power of sound and how transformative that can be for someone, right? If you think about the memories you have, they almost all have music attached to it or movies attached to it or something that is visceral about sound that connects you to that memory, to a family occasion, to a date night or a dinner or the birth of your children. And, you know, the connection that sound has to our emotions is pretty powerful. We've been creating that emotional connection for people for decades, but we've tended in the past to market more around technology and innovation and the specifications of the product, not the specific specifications, but um, why technically it's superior. Mm -hmm. And I think what you see from us now is more of a shift to this more emotional connection to the brand around sound and the power of sound, which we think really resonates with our customers. And, um, and so we're excited about that transformation, right? We think we're we're getting a better understanding of who the Bose customer is, why they love Bose, and and how we draw in new customers to Bose who want to have that same experience over time. I am someone who reads a lot of advertising for audio equipment. It's one of my favorite things. Uh-huh. I want to come back to that because there's, okay. there's a real dynamic embedded there, right? Between for a minute, everyone's going to market high fidelity sound, and then that's going to be taken for granted. And we're all going to come back to... What we were going to market is you. Do you remember your first date and what song was playing? And then another format comes out, and we're all going to market high fidelity sound again. So I want to talk about that dynamic in a different context in a minute, but I do want to get through uh, these decoder questions. So you've made some decisions, you made some changes, you are changing how you're marketing the products, you've changed the structure. This is the decoder question. How do you make decisions? You've had a number of different roles. You've been a consultant, now you're a CEO. What's your framework for making decisions? 
Uh, it's a really good question. It's a hard one to answer, right? I think there was a moment in management history where the answer was, you know, let's just make a, a chart of who the decider is. And then that that's the way we'll make great decisions is we'll just be clear on who the decider is. And obviously that's important in some instances. What I like to focus on is two things, maybe three things. One is getting the right people in the room right? Great decisions are made when the right voices are part of the discussion that leads to the decision, right? Making decisions in isolation without all the right information is dangerous. And so I think the first part of how I make decisions, certainly, and how I want the organization to make decisions is get everybody who has a voice in the room so you hear the diversity of perspectives to inform the decision. So that's one, get the right people in the room. The second is something that at Bose we're calling informed debate. Challenge each other, use facts, call out when you don't agree, right? Disagree in the room. And lots of companies have ways of talking about that, right? Disagree and commit. And, you know, we've heard them all. But this idea of being willing to have the messy debate is really important because you can get all the right people in the room. And then if the most senior or perceived powerful person in the room starts off, states what we're going to do, no one else actually gets a chance to voice what matters. And so this idea of informed debate is really important. And then the third is something that we talk about, which is purposeful speed. You can't draw that out over months, right? You Those things I just described can be done in 30 minutes or three months. And so we happen to participate in a market that moves pretty quickly. And so for us, making those decisions with purposeful speed is critically important. And so that maybe is a very different way of thinking about decision-making, but that's the way, certainly the way I operate my senior team and the way that we're, you know, changing a little bit the culture at Bose in terms of how we make decisions. So just put that into practice for me. You show up, you're the new CEO. This is two years ago. You take a look at things and say, okay, I've got to restructure the company. We've gotten too siloed. There's too many different product divisions, probably some redundancy of effort. I'm going to a functional organization. How did you make that decision? Sort of the same way I just described, right? I brought a whole bunch of thoughts. I listened a lot. I brought a whole bunch of people into the room. My leadership team worked through it to get to the decision. It was kind of a, you know, the group worked through it. I used the board in the same way, right? I mean, I think your your board is an important part of informing really big changes. And so um, certainly involve them in it. And then it's a question of just how do you sequence the things that you want to change, right? You can't change everything at once. And so what's the right sequence? So two more of these decoder questions, and then I really do have a million questions about specific speakers. <laughs> That's really all I want to talk about. All of decoder is just a long lead up to me making product requests. Let's be honest. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> as long as you love the products, I love the products, so we can talk about them all day. Oh yeah, no, we're gonna we're gonna get down into weeds of what why the buttons do what they do. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned you have a board, but Bose is privately held. It's not a public company. How does that work? Because it is one of the few companies that has not been pushed to go public? How does that part of it work? Yeah, it's definitely a unique structure. Um, and one of the things that I think, you know, joining Bose you, takes a minute to really understand how it works. Um, it's both very different and then in some ways not that different. So as you might know, Dr. Bose gifted shares of the company to MIT. So our largest shareholder is MIT. Their shares are non-voting, and so they don't participate in the operations of the company or selecting the board or anything like that. And the company is governed, therefore, in a pretty different way because of that. At the same time, we have a board. The board functions 
pretty similarly to a public company board or, or a different private company board. Um, and so on a day-to-day basis, it doesn't feel different. When you really step back and think about it, it's quite different than you know what's typical. But on a day-to-day basis and in terms of interaction with the board, it's pretty standard. Is there any push to go public? No, it's actually part of the gift is that the the intent, what Dr. Bose was really trying to do was to create a structure where Bose would remain private. And the reason for that is, you know, he wanted the company to continue to innovate and to continue to focus on research that could make people's lives better. He wasn't specific that it had to be audio experiences, but he was very specific about research and innovation being the purpose of the company. That's really important, right? That grounds us. It's it's really special, actually, to have a purpose like that that's so unique and inspiring and different. And I think he recognized that, you know, if Bose got swallowed up and became a public company or got swallowed up by a bigger public company, that purpose would get eroded over time. And so he wanted to protect that. And so the structure is set up so that we will remain private. And that's pretty cool. You mentioned also that Bose has a lot of sort of long range research and development work. It's a strength of the company. You've got engineers working on projects that might not come to light for several years. Any public company in the current economic climate would be shutting that down. And you can actually see the big tech companies are cutting costs and doing layoffs. And a lot of it is the metaverse or uh, Amazon yesterday, right, in their hardware and devices group that made some cuts. Because that stuff isn't going to pay off for a while and they need to focus on the present. Are you under that same pressure? Do you feel that same pressure to say, okay, this stuff isn't coming true for 10 more years. We've got to be focused on what will be successful right now? Yes and no. Right. So the the beauty of our structure and being private is that we can play a longer game. We don't have shareholders externally and investors that are looking at quarterly results in the same way. And so it gives us the freedom to look out a few years and say, look, we're, we're willing to sacrifice performance a little bit this year because we think this investment is critical to the future of the company. And that's a really great luxury, right? I mean, I think theoretically, that's what all companies want to be able to do is they want to be able to make purposeful investments now for the future and not have to shortcut those when, you know, the economy swings. So that's a real luxury. And I don't take that lightly, right? It's important. And because it is such the core of our mission and purpose, we really think hard about the investments we're making and making sure that we see them through, right? I I think that's how we're different. At the same time, you know, we have to be a viable company, right? So we have to make tough choices. We have to, you know, do the things that make sense because there is no long-term if you don't take care of the short-term. And so we still have to manage results quarter by quarter, year by year, but we can have, I think, a little bit more of a balanced view and a more um, informed conversation about what's right for Bose amongst ourselves versus with a lot of other voices outside weighing in on that. I imagine that long view is pretty enticing to folks when you go out to hire engineering talent. The flip side of it is if you go work for one of the big tech companies or even a startup, there's often an equity-based payday at the end of that rainbow. How do you compete with that? Do you do you have dividends? Do you have equity? How does that work? Yeah, so I won't go into detail on it, but we've created a comp structure that 
shadows that a bit. It's never going to have the extreme upside of picking the right tech company at the right moment where the options go crazy, but it provides plenty of upside opportunity for our employees as we're successful. So I think it works. The other thing I would say is you come to work for Bose because you're passionate about what we do. That doesn't say money isn't important and we certainly pay fairly, but our value proposition doesn't start with how much money you're going to make when you come to Bose. Our value proposition starts with you love music, you're passionate about consumer products, you you love automotive and you love music and you want to put those two passions together, whatever it might be, right? We attract talent who love the mission and the purpose of what we do here. And yes, for many of them, it's the ability to look a little bit longer, but but it's that passion first. And so we attract a little bit of a different vibe, I think, when you think about <laughs> employees that want to come to work at Bose. That's great. You're not doing Elon stuff. You're not like you have to go hardcore every day or you're out. No, no, we're not. <laughs> I feel like I have to ask that question to every CEO from here on out, just to be clear <laughs> that not every CEO is like that. We have to take a break, but when we come back, I promise we're going to talk about products. Support for Decoder comes from Indeed. Finding the perfect candidate for the job can feel like a product of fate, but all you really need is just an efficient matching engine that knows your preferences. For that, you can turn to Indeed. When hiring on Indeed, you can ditch the busy work. It schedules, screens, and messages candidates for you, so you can connect with them faster. Its matching engine learns from your use, too, so the more you use Indeed, the more accurate it gets. A recent survey by Indeed found that 93% of employers agree the site delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. You can join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash The Decoder. Just go to Indeed.com slash The Decoder right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash The Decoder. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Support for Decoder comes from Notion. Winter is beginning to wind down and spring cleaning is just around the corner. In that spirit, it's time to declutter your digital workspace. For that, you might want to check out Notion. Notion combines your notes, docs, and projects into one space that's simple and beautifully designed. And the fully integrated Notion AI helps you work faster, write better, and think bigger. Doing tasks that normally take you hours in just seconds. Personally, I use Notion to keep myself organized and to store all the information I need in one place. I've tried a lot of productivity apps over the years, and Notion is sleek, intuitive, and powerful. In particular, Notion has an AI feature called Q&A that allows you to search all of your notes by simply asking for what you're looking for. For me, that means old links to news stories, long-lost notes to myself, and maybe even an old password to an account I might be trying to dig up. Seriously, give it a try. It's as easy as just asking a question. We all want to be sending less emails and tuning into less redundant meetings. And Notion can help you by automating tedious tasks, like managing and summarizing notes. It'll also help you save money on all those tools you won't need anymore with Notion's integration. Over half of Fortune 500 companies rely on Notion to simplify their workflow, and you can join them. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash Nilai. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash Nilai, to try the powerful, easy-to-use Notion AI today. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. 
notion.com slash Neelai. We're back. Let's talk about the stuff you do do. I promise we're going to talk about products. Let's start. You mentioned the three buckets. Uh, there's noise canceling, there's immersive audio, um, and there's hearing what you want. And then inside of that, there's headphones and cars and all these things. Let's start with headphones. That's what I think of Bose as right now is the noise canceling headphone company. I owned a pair of quiet comfort twos. Our own Chris Welch reviews headphones says the earbuds two are the best uh, noise canceling earbuds. Thank you. This is where you're at. Is that the business? Is that what makes the most money right now? Or much more balanced than that. And it's interesting. I think it depends on your entry point. And it, 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 one of the most interesting things that's happened to me since I joined Bose is wherever I go in the world and I say that I work at Bose, the first thing that happens is I get a story about the first product I had, the product I love the most. And it's awesome. It's like the most fun part of my job is just hearing our customers talk about how excited the products are. And I sort of came in with my own view. And what I've learned through all of those thousands, I think now conversations is that your view of what Bose is depends on your entry point. So for a lot of customers, Bose is a car audio company, right? Because their daily experience with Bose is in their car where they have this amazing experience on their commute to work, maybe less often than they've commuted in the past, right? So the entry point into Bose matters a lot, but we certainly are in the headphone space, but we're really in three big spaces directly, which is in the home, the home theater and the home music experience that you have in the car, which is a very important and big part of our business as well. And then on the go headphones. So your headphone line right now, like all headphone companies, you had to survive the no more headphone jack shock of 2018 or whatever it was, right? I mean, the whole industry changed when Apple and then Samsung and then everyone else removed the headphone jack, your interconnect changed. Now you are wholly dependent on Bluetooth. The big companies now all have proprietary riffs on Bluetooth where they get to self-preference their own products. Apple has, I think they're up to H2 now. They got a chip, they've got a stack, they've got a whole UI that's built in the operating system. Samsung has the same thing for the Galaxy Buds. Google has the same thing with Pixel Buds. How do you compete in that kind of marketplace? So I think we start with who's our customer. For us, our customer is the music lover, right? These wireless headphones do a lot of jobs, right? They're communication devices, they're listening devices. They do a lot of different things. And different consumers care about different features depending on their primary use case. We are very focused on the music lover and the entertainment lover, right? So for us, we lean in really heavily to the features that matter to those specific customers and recognize that our competitors may have other advantages because they're leading into different consumer sets. But we really focus on that noise cancellation, which creates, I think of it as a clean palette, right? Amazing noise cancellation just creates this, uh, this uh, stage that you can build immersive lifelike audio on top of. And that's really where we wanna be differentiated and we wanna be the best. And so we focus there and recognize our competitors will focus on different things that may or may not be important to that particular customer. But what they're focused on pretty specifically is making their products more convenient in a way that you cannot compete with, right? Fundamental. I'll just pick on Apple because I think everyone has a familiarity with Apple. AirPods are extraordinarily convenient. They pair with an iPhone. They pair with a Mac. They pair with your iPad. They're pre-paired. That's all synced in the cloud. 
that is not technology you have access to. That is not a system level capability you have access to. Does that seem like a blocker? And I'm, I'm picking at Apple, but the other big companies are starting to do this stuff too, Google and Samsung in particular. Yeah. So we're device agnostic. So you can use a Bose headset, pair of headphones with any device. We have really strong relationships with our you know, partners, you know, Qualcomm is one that we talk about a lot, but we are working within the parameters of where we can design and engineer and creating the best possible experience there, recognizing that there may be things we can't access in those ecosystems, but we also think we're creating a pretty great experience on Bluetooth, even if it doesn't have exactly the same feature set as our competitors do. Bluetooth also has other limits, right? It has data rate limits, bandwidth limits. There's a hard limit on the audio quality that you can pass over standard Bluetooth unless the device makers implement different kinds of codecs. Qualcomm might want to do things, but Samsung and Sony and whoever else might have wildly different ideas about what they want to do on their actual devices. Are those conversations you participate in? Hey, in order to compete and send lossless audio to a set of Bose headphones that has targeted to the music lover, you need to change Bluetooth. What's your relationship there like? It's a complex and big ecosystem, as you know, and we participate exactly as you would expect, right? There's a piece about understanding and there's a piece about influencing and we try to do all of those things, right? We are trying to make sure we're creating the best experiences for our customer and we're going to all the partners necessary to advocate for what we need to make those experiences possible. Are you on the board of the Bluetooth SIG, the special interest group? Do you have engineers involved there? How does that work? What does that investment look like? Yeah, we do. And, you know, we pick our spots, right? We invest in the places that we think we're not as big as all of our competitors. So we pick our spots. We invest and we focus in the industry groups and the spaces where we think it'll have the biggest impact on our vision of where our products are going. Do you perceive a hard limit on what you're able to do with headphones because of the, particularly the reality of mobile devices? No. No, I mean, I think we're imagining where we can innovate. There may be hard limits on some things, but those will change too, right? This ecosystem evolves quickly. And so we're continuing to look at the places where we can innovate and differentiate and move in those directions and making sure we're creating our place in the rest of the ecosystem. The reason I ask so directly is there are lots of headphone companies that were effectively wiped out when the physical interconnect of the headphone jack went away and they just became commodity Bluetooth headphone suppliers and they were buying the pieces off the shelf and all they were left with was basically branding, which is might have been all they had before, but now the products are more expensive and people can perceive flakier commodity Bluetooth radios failing at a higher rate. So there's just a part here where the self-preferencing of the mobile device makers represents an existential threat to the business for you. For some headphone makers, simply removing the physical open interconnect was an existential risk and they're dead now. For you, obviously Bose has much more uh, investment in technology. You're probably building better Bluetooth hardware than everybody else was. You have a brand. But there is, at the end of some road, another existential moment if the platform vendor's self-preference too much. Is that something you're on the lookout for? Yeah, I mean, look, risks exist everywhere, right? (laughs) So it's interesting, right? The Bluetooth connectivity is, you can't live without it right? But it's not what makes the device special. And so our ability to continue to innovate and drive new and better and differentiated experiences, we're focusing on those areas because we think customers really care about those. Um, But we're looking out for all those threats that you described. And it's why it's really important that we're not 
a single thing, right? We're not just about headphones. We're not just about the car, right? We've got a diverse portfolio, which allows us to weather through some of those threats as they, as they arise. Do your headphones mostly connect to mobile devices? Phones for sure, right? I mean, if you just think about your own usage and what you see on the street, an earbud for sure is predominantly a phone connected device. But more and more, you know, the conversation we're having, uh, work happening over phones, more entertainment being consumed on laptops and tablets, you know, there's connectivity to all of those devices that are happening pretty regularly, actually. So, yes, the phone is the dominant, but it's certainly not the only one. So do you ever go to Apple or Google, let's say, and say, look, our headphones they sound great. They're targeted at music lovers. We could support lossless audio tomorrow if you implement this codec, whatever it is. Can you do it for us? Is, is that a conversation that's happening? Because it, it seems like they're very resistant to it because that's something that they could enable for their own products and not everybody else. We have conversations with everyone in the ecosystem about what we could do together to make the experience better. Do you think those conversations are fruitful? In some cases and not all <laughs> cases. Yeah. Give me an example of where it's fruitful. Um, look, I think we're doing a lot with Qualcomm now, and I won't talk about the specifics, but we're partnering in a deeper way with Qualcomm. They've got to focus on sound with their Snapdragon platform. We think that brings a lot of possibilities. We work with them at the engineer to engineer level very early in the process to talk about the vision of what we want to bring to the market. They certainly are creating a lot for, for everyone to use, but we talk to them early enough to help make sure the unique experiences we want to be able to deliver, we will be able to deliver through their silicon. And so that's a good example, I think, of a partnership which is really strong and one that we think allows us to innovate in new and different ways. And is that open interconnect with the Qualcomm stuff or is that going to be proprietary to Bose? Yes. Could be either. <laughs> is, do, you have, do you have a point of view on it or is it you just signed a partnership and we have to see what happens? I think it's going to evolve. You know, if you think about our strategy in general, and I know we, we you wanted to get back to hearing, maybe this will be a good segue over to hearing. We're looking at new and different ways to partner at Bose. It's probably one of the things that historically there's been less of than you might have imagined. And, and we're looking to do more partnerships going forward. And I think the hearing space is an instructive one to talk about because Bose was involved early on in the over-the-counter regulation conversations, trying to influence in the U.S. those regulations getting put in place because the company believed strongly that access and affordability were issues in hearing loss and that it was important to create a new environment where consumers, people, could have more access and more affordability in the hearing aid market. We've been investing in hearing aid technology for quite some years. It's one of those long-term research projects that started well before I got here. And one of the things that we realized was being a full-scale health company probably didn't make sense for Bose. And so instead, we still want to participate in the hearing aid space because we think our technology is unique and differentiated, uh, but we are going to do that with partners. And so you saw our, our partnership with Lexi Hearing uh, to bring a hearing aid to market with them, powered by Bose. So their B1 and B2 hearing aids are both powered by Bose, but Lexi has the expertise that Bose doesn't necessarily have around commercializing a medical or health device. 
FDA regulations, being in the space of insurance and payers and providers, that's not a space that Bose has lived in. And rather than building all of that capability internally, we're going to feed our technology into their products to allow great technology to get in the hands of customers, but in a more effective way. And I think that's a great example of thinking about partnerships differently and how we can use them at Bose to drive technology in those franchise areas that I talked about into different use cases that we may not have done on our own. So the hearing aid category is really fascinating, right? The bill just passed to enable over-the-counter hearing aids to be sold to regular people. It has always seemed like a pair of headphones in transparency mode is basically a hearing aid anyway. (laughs) The industry has talked a lot about augmented reality and wearables. All of that seems to be converging in different ways. But hearing aids themselves are still a health product, like you said, the FDA is involved, insurance carriers involved. There's a long road between you having the idea and getting to an actual customer. And you're saying, instead of figuring that out for yourself, you're going to partner with another company that already has the expertise. That's right. And the important thing, I think, is that hearing augmentation, I'll call it, is a continuum, right? If you have moderate hearing loss, a consumer device is not going to solve your problem. You're going to need a hearing aid, right? The difference between a headphone and a hearing aid is pretty dramatic. And it's largely around power consumption and battery length. The hearing aid, it's not optional. If you need a hearing aid, it actually needs to work for 12 to 15 hours so that you charge it while you're sleeping. But you can't charge it in the middle of your day, right? You need it to last through the day. And the ability to get great audio at low power consumption is a problem that hasn't yet been solved exactly. And so hearing aids have always had a slightly different capability set because of that need of low power consumption and all day use. I think if you have mild hearing loss, right, and you're earlier in that journey, there are a lot of things consumer products can do that can help you as you make the transition eventually to needing a hearing aid, right? So if you think about the hear what you want kind of concept that we talked about before, that's a great place for an earbud, for example. You're in a noisy cafe or you're at a restaurant with family and friends and it's loud. And even if you're not someone who needs a hearing aid, you know, I certainly fall into this category (laughs) at a loud restaurant or bar, I could use the person I'm talking to being a little bit augmented and everything else being turned down a couple of notches in terms of volume. And so those are early hearing, I wouldn't call them issues, hearing needs, right, on this spectrum of needing a little bit of help. It's like the reading glasses equivalent. I don't need it all the time, but occasionally I might put those reading glasses on. This is a similar concept. Those sorts of things are things you can imagine coming into more of a consumer device. The issue that I think no one has solved yet is social cues. So if I'm wearing a pair of headphones, even if I could create what I just described using AI, this experience where I hear your voice across the table, but not the rest of the restaurant, I'm still sending a social cue that says, I have on a pair of headphones, I don't want to talk to you, right? We've spent 20 years (laughs) teaching the world that especially banded headphones, but even, you know, earbuds... When I have those in, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you on the plane. I don't want to talk to you on the subway. I don't want to talk to you on the street. And I certainly would feel rude wearing them in a restaurant when I'm sitting across the table from you. And so over time, we have to solve that social cue. And as the person wearing the headphones, I probably don't 
want to tell you I have a little bit of a hearing challenge, which would then make the social cue okay, but makes me probably feel uncomfortable. So there's still, I think, a lot of learning to do around these social cues and the stigma aspect that hasn't yet been solved. And in all of our research, that's actually the biggest issue that keeps people from getting a little bit of help with their hearing is the stigma of it. And that the over-the-counter regulations don't immediately solve that. We've got to do more work on technology to figure out how to help people solve that. That's fascinating because that doesn't seem like an engineering problem. That seems like a cultural problem, a product marketing problem. And a bit of a design problem, right? A design problem. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. How are you organized around solving that problem? You know, one of the advantages of bringing our research and development teams together, as we talked about before, is that you sort of mashing together the people who are really researching hearing health technology, right? The kind of technology that we think can drive that forward are now sitting together virtually or physically with the folks that are creating earbuds. And they're having different conversations about how we bring those technologies together, which is fascinating. One of the things I'm excited about when you think about hearing health and some of the stigma issues that we talked about is some of the open-ear technology that we've been working on at Bose and how open-ear technology may start to solve some of these challenges about social cues and the ability to bring hearing health into more of a consumer device. So by open-ear audio, I mean uh, the audio experience created by the frames, uh, the Bose frames as an example. Those are the sunglasses. The audio sunglasses, yeah. Because we were looking at your website before the show and we're like, but the sunglasses are like in the nav bar of the website. <laughs> and, you know, I know that everyone's excited about sunglasses or speakers and then but they're in the nav. Like, are they, is that, a, <laughs> is that just a signal? This is important to us. Are you selling a lot of them? What's going on there? I would think about open ear audio as in the experimentation stage, right? You know, we've had frames, we had the sport open earbuds. There was a, a an earlier product that we had, which you kind of wore around your neck and it created a an open ear experience. And what we found is that there are very passionate fans of these products, right? There are people for whom these are really important. I think of it as a technology that is still evolving and kind of figuring out what are the benefits of that open ear technology and how do we help create form factors that make sense for consumers. And that's something that we're actively researching and looking at. But there's something about transparency, not just transparency mode, where I have something stuffed in my ear and I'm able to hear, but actually having transparency and the ability to have an audio experience. There's something magical there. And, you know, we're continuing to experiment. Uh, people who love frames will tell you that that is the experience. They love the audio sunglasses. But we think there's a lot of other ideas there that we're exploring. I don't want to sound rude, but usually when I hear a CEO say, some people love them and there's something there that translates to, and we haven't sold a whole lot of them. Have you sold a whole lot of them? Yeah, we have. Um, but we're still thinking about, it's early. The frames are a great exploration. People love them. And we're continuing to look for what might be a better solution down the road. When I think about computers, which I think about a lot, it, I think it's obvious. <laughs> uh, one of the things that happens with computers, you have to, especially mobile ones, is you have to care for them. So a cell phone is a remarkably needy object in our lives, right? You've got to pay a service fee to give it connectivity. The battery's always dying. You can't drop it. One of the reasons most wearables fail is the cost is very high. You've got to have it on your body all the time, and the batteries are small, and it's still a computer. 
And then the value that they give back to you is usually very low, right? They, they do one thing. So sunglasses or speakers, and then they, they kind of do one thing. They play music at you when there's music. Otherwise, you're just wearing some sunglasses, and hopefully they're yep. cool enough for you to wear all the time. Do you, <laughs> yep. do you think that value equation has to change dramatically? If you think about what earbuds do today versus what they did five years ago or seven years ago or 10 years ago, even when they were wired, I think the jobs that they're doing are increasing, right? And part of that is kind of all the dimensions that you said, right? Longer battery life, higher compute, the ability to do more jobs. I think the value changes over time as you're able to create more value in them. So if you think about the frames, today they play music, but down the road they could do other things as well. And so it's how those things evolve to create value. Ultimately, that's always what we're doing in a consumer business, right? You've, you've got to create products that have enough value for the consumer that they want to pay for what it costs to make them and make a little bit of money on the back end of that. So, you know, that customer value equation we're always thinking about and, and wrestling with in the minute details, right? Like, does this one thing that we're adding, is that cost worth it to the customer? Because if it's not, we shouldn't put it in, right? It's not creating value. So, we think about that question in the macro, but also in the micro decisions that we're making as we're bringing products to market. The other side of this, especially for consumer products, is as you layer more and more software into a product, you layer more and more recurring costs, right? You've got to keep the software updated. You've got to run some cloud servers for whatever backend thing is happening. You've got to update the app for iOS 25 or whatever is going to come out to make sure that the functionality and the user interface is still there. Are you thinking about recurring revenue, like subscription headphones? Because that's how most companies have solved that cost problem is by saying, oh, we're actually going to pass the cost on to you. We'll deliver more features to you over time. But now you got to pay five bucks a month or 25 bucks a month or whatever. Headphones, for the most part, have not started doing that. But it's as you add more software, more capability and particularly more AI capability, you are going to have to run a bunch of servers and pay for people to use the products. How do you solve that problem? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and it's one that's here today, right? We're, we're already doing a lot of the things that you just described, over-the-air updates and backward compatibility and new iOS, all of that stuff, right? So that has been the change that's been ongoing over the last several years. So it's certainly something that we talk about and we think about. You've got to have the customer value to create that ongoing model. And so what is that going to be? We certainly have a lot of ideas and we're thinking about it and testing it. You see it now happening in automotive, starting to happen in automotive. So we think it's interesting there as well, right? Are there features and functionality that maybe not everybody wants or needs, but is highly valuable to some? And can we deliver that in an over-the-air capability that could lead to a subscription model? We're for sure thinking about that. I think you're making specific reference to BMW, which is rolling out some capabilities as subscription. And I would describe it as, frankly, an uproar over the idea that you'd pay $8 a month for heated seats. You can definitely go too far. What's too far for you? I don't think we know yet. We haven't done those experiments yet. So I think you've got to put something out there like BMW is doing and see what resonates. I, I think that this is a test and learn situation, right? And, you know, sometimes the things that you imagine are going to create value and that customers are really going to want to pay extra for don't turn out to be the things. And, you know, other things might be that you would have never thought about. And so I think that ultimately 
this will end up being a test and learn situation for most companies, including us, to sort of understand what consumers get real value out of and how we think about bringing that to market. So I think there's a long road in front of us to figure this out. And I think it's going to take a little bit of evolution to get there. We need to take one more break, but when we come back, we're going to dive into cars. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We're back. Just before the break, we were talking about BMW. That seems like a good segue to talk about cars. You mentioned that cars are a big place for Bose plays. It might be where people have the, the most experience with Bose in, in some ways. You're in GM cars. You're in Honda cars. I always think of these deals as brand licensing deals. The automakers need a fancy brand inside the car. Someone will sell them a logo. That's it. Is that what you're doing or do you do more? That is absolutely not what we're doing. Uh, so you'll never see a Bose logo in a car that's not a sound system that we didn't create. You know, it's funny. This morning I was down twice a year. Uh, our research team in automotive does a really big show and tell. And I was down this morning doing all of the show and tell of the the research that's happening. And it's just amazing what our teams are creating. And so every Bose sound system in a car is uniquely designed for that car. The great thing about automotive is you have a known set of dimensions and fixed passengers, right? <laughs> Living rooms are complicated because they're all different sizes and people sit in different places and you can never really predict that. The great thing about a car is we know the dimensions of that particular vehicle and we know exactly where people are going to sit. And so there's a ton of research and work that our team does to create these amazing sound experiences based on that geometry of the car, based on how many speakers that the team has decided to put in the car, and and then the tuning of that car to have kind of this perfect system coming off of the assembly line. So we are doing a ton of work. We're a you know a tier one supplier, so we're working directly with our automotive partners to both design, develop, 
and then launch those products into market. So it is a very deep partnership with a lot of innovation inside of it. As I look across the auto industry, these deals are everywhere. I have a Ford with a Bang & Olufsen system. My friend has a Mercedes with a Burmester system. Jeep has Macintosh. Like they're everywhere. Everyone is doing it all the time. Harman Kardon has a huge business here. How do you go and make the sale? What does that pitch look like? Yeah, so um, it's probably important to mention that Dr. Bose and Bose also invented this category. So, you know, 40 years ago in a Cadillac was the first time there was a premium audio system in a car, right? You can probably remember back to the time where you went to the car audio store and you bought all the components and then you retrofitted a nice audio system into your car. Oh, I was that teenager completely. We can, what's... I I got the sense. Yeah. (laughs) I just got burned on my own show. I've got to recover now. (laughs) I love those people. You are our people. That's awesome. Um, that, you know, changed 40 years ago, right? That Cadillac and Dr. Bose got together and said, okay, why are we making consumers do this in the aftermarket? Why don't we just create something that's designed for this really special car? And so that sort of launched this market. When we go talk to our OEM partners, we compete on technology, right? We compete on how it sounds, the innovation. There's so many new and different things that you can do now with technology in the car. It's really changing rapidly, right? So you think about bringing Dolby Atmos experiences into cars and how how that's happening. We're also taking noise cancellation into the car, right? So there's another aspect now, which is not just the audio system, but particularly with electric vehicles becoming more and more prevalent, suddenly without an internal combustion engine, all the other sounds in the car come to life and you realize just how loud the tires on the road are or just how loud the wind noise is or the HVAC system in the car. And so we've taken our noise cancellation expertise and brought it to the car and and implementing road noise control systems with cars, the ability to take out that annoying road, road noise sound and so many other things in this kind of area of active sound management, right? How do we take away the offensive sounds in the car? A quiet cabin is a more luxurious cabin, right? And for our purposes, a quiet cabin allows you to really experience that lifelike audio. So we see them as the yin and yang together, just like we would say in a headphone. You need that great noise cancellation uh, to create the palette for the audio. So we talk about technology. We demonstrate technology. We demonstrate things that are near in and far out. And we get a lot of great feedback from our OEM partners. And that allows us to focus on the right innovation that we then drive forward. What grows that business and on what cadence, right? Is it every five years Volkswagen Group is going to reopen the audio contract and there's a bunch of RFPs and you go out and do it? Or is it we're layering more and more technology into the car and the our revenue per vehicle is going up? So it's probably both. I mean, automakers are always thinking about how to create better and different value propositions, just like any B2B business, right? We're constantly talking to folks in the market about what we're doing and what they're looking for and who their customer is and finding uh, these great opportunities to partner. So uh, we think there's a a lot of opportunity in this space and, and we're certainly out there going after it. But we also see, as I said, right, new applications of our technology in the car that create opportunities for new revenue streams like active sound management that I described before. So it's it's a bit of both. Maybe the single most common cliche on Decoder is car CEOs come on the show and they tell me the cars are computers now. 
that means, right, you've described now a lot of the capabilities Bose has is because compute is more powerful and cheaper and more battery efficient. You can move it closer to the user. As that's happening in a car, they're consolidating the compute in the car. Like, that's the big trend is they've gone from 95 different supplier provided computers to maybe one or two. And they're all picking different platforms. Do you have to make your technology work on all of their platforms? Have you thought about growing into being a platform provider like that? What's the future there? That evolution is alive and well. <laughs> As you know, it's happening, right? We're we're seeing an incredible transformation in the automotive space. And we're certainly right in the middle of all of that. We are very clear on what we do, right? We're very clear on how that's been delivered in the past. Every OEM is moving at a different pace to this new world of up integration where uh, the compute is more centralized, as you described. And so the pacing of it is different. And so the, you know, the challenge for us is just making sure that we're building for the future and can kind of support them along the way. It does mean we need to be flexible and we need to be able to adjust. Um, We have our own platforms, right? We're building our software on our own platforms and, and being able to port those platforms into a variety of scenarios that is sure to evolve with our, uh, our OEM partners is part of what we need to do and part of what we're focused on doing. So just to bring that to life for the listener, I'll pick on my own garage. I have a Ford that runs QNX, which is horrible. Yep. <laughs> it's bad. They, they've threatened now to go to Android. Who knows when it's going to happen, but it's running QNX, which is made by BlackBerry. We have a Jeep that's running not Google's Android, but a forked version of Android with a bunch of Amazon integrations on top of it. Those are radically different platforms, radically different chipsets. You're not in either of those cars, but if you wanted to go get that business and you're like, we're going to run active sound cancellation in these cars, do you have to port them to those platforms or do you put a different box in the car entirely? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And in some cases, right, we're, we're porting into those systems. And yes, you have to do that differently. In some cases, they're not that consolidated yet. And so it could be our own amplifier. It could be a competitive compute box. It could be something that you just described, right? So every flavor you could imagine exists right now. And I think we know just based on how other markets have evolved over time that this will consolidate down the road. But between here and there, being agile and nimble and able to work across different platforms is the key to success. And that's what we're focused on. Do you find that that complexity reduces your ability to innovate? I think it forces you to innovate how you build to make it as easy as possible to connect in. And so the way that we architect our solutions, the more that we can create that is common, and then the connection and the porting into those systems becomes a pipe, but not a complete rebuild, that's the key. So it's it's an architecture solution and a forward thinking about how you build that architecture where the magic is. I have to ask you once again about platform vendors. I feel like I keep asking about this. Google <laughs> is really aggressive in the auto space. More and more people are moving to Android Auto or forking Android in the case of Stellantis. Do you see that as the thing that you need to spend the most energy on? Or are you saying there's going to be a thousand different platforms and we're going to be everywhere? I think we're looking across all the possibilities. And remember, it's a whole stack. It's not just the Android piece at the top. There's the the chipset and the stack that sits underneath that. We're looking at that entire ecosystem. We are in active conversations across those that we think are going to matter the most. And like everyone else, we're going to have to place a few bets 
and be as agile as possible in the transition. All right. I want to end by asking about spatial audio, which you have brought up in the context of the car and Atmos in the car. It's also, you know, it's the big thing in the home and people are trying to make it a thing on headphones. We just had Steve Boom from Amazon on the show. He's very excited that Amazon supports Spatial and Sony's 360. There are lots of formats. The music industry is excited about it because they get to re-up a bunch of deals. Do you think it sounds good? I think that what I hear in our R&D lab sounds amazing. And we are committed to bringing a product to the market when we think it is a Bose-worthy experience. And so I think that there is a ton of potential for spatial audio, uh, particularly when you think about headphones. Um, we're already seeing it in you know home theater, of course, and in, in home audio. I think it's a little bit different there. But when you think about kind of the headphone space and the ability to have it on the go with you, we see a ton of potential. But we also think the experience has to be of a level where the consumer appreciates why it's special and we're building toward that. The reason I ask is almost at the very beginning of the show, you talked about changing the marketing of Bose and going away from tech specs to experiences. Spatial audio is one of those tech specs that rolls out and then we're all going to market the tech spec and we're going to talk about channels of audio and I don't know, height channels, all the stuff that we're going to do with spatial. And then it's going to become a commodity and people are going to notice it or not notice it. We're going to go back to, do you remember when you had your first kiss, the song was playing? That is the <laughs> dynamic in the industry. It always has been. Do you think spatial is enough of a thing to market to people? Do you think people care enough? Because the other stuff like lossless uh, has not been that. It's interesting actually, because I think in some ways the industry latches onto these words and consumers don't actually necessarily know what the words mean but you have to have it. I'm gonna use Atmos at the moment as an example of that. So no one right now wants to buy a soundbar that doesn't support Dolby Atmos, which is, I get it, I totally understand it. But if you actually think about the content that you're consuming, I think right now it's under 5% of the content. I could be off by a percentage point or two, but under 5% of the content that is actually getting to deliver to consumers is Atmos content. And it's a combination of, you know, we haven't made all the content in Atmos yet, uh, but it's more so about the configuration. You have to have the right TV and the right cabling and the right setup in order for the Atmos content to actually reach your ears. And so sometimes we get enamored with an idea like Dolby Atmos, where everyone has to have it, even though they're not quite sure what it is or what they're getting. And so, you know, for us at Bose, you know, we thought about that problem a lot and we said, look, We've created something we call True Space, which allows you on the 95% or so of content that's not coming through as Atmos to your ears, we've created an algorithm that allows you to have that spatial audio, that Atmos experience, even if the content isn't Atmos. Because what we don't want is consumers to buy a Bose soundbar that is made for Dolby Atmos and then sit in their house and think, I don't hear it. I don't <laughs> get it then they think, okay, well, this isn't a very good soundbar, but the reality is the content is not. So we're creating an Atmos experience, even if the content isn't that. And so I think it's a good example of where consumers latch on to a tech spec or tech speak and may or may not actually know what that means or what it is. I think spatial audio is similar. I think it's a term that the industry uses, but average consumers 
don't quite understand what that means. And I actually think a lot of companies that use the term mean different things. And so part of our challenge is going to be as we bring those products to market, how do we talk about them in a way that we're talking about what the experience actually is, not what the buzzword is. There's a little bit of a brewing format war here between Atmos and Sony 360 Reality Audio and whatever else. Do you participate in those format wars or do you just say we're going to support everything? I think we need to support the content that our consumers want to listen to, right? So, you know, we're thinking about the experience that the customer wants and making sure that, you know, we're able to create that. Well, just for the record, I think spatial audio is very silly. Um, <laughs> I think it's great for movies. I've never really understood uh, what's going on with music in spatial audio. But I'm curious if you think that that is going to have an effect on the music industry the way that the people who are very excited do. It's interesting. I think there are some consumers that may never take to it, right? It just may not sound right to them. They may not like it. And I think others are going to love it. So it's one of those things that may be a little bit polarizing. I think we probably don't know yet because it's going to get interesting when the creators start creating music in a spatialized format, right? Whenever you take something that was recorded in one way and then change its format, that's great. But when you really get the shift in the experience is when the creators themselves are creating the content, the music in that format. And you certainly see that with movies, right? Movies that are created with Atmos are a different experience than those that are rendered that way in you know, backward compatible. So I think, I think the jury's still out. I think we're excited about the experiences. I think that it always will hinge on whether the content created is exciting enough to get someone who's a skeptic like you to, to give it a try. See, I could do another whole hour on movies and in the home and your soundbar line, but I think that means <laughs> I'm happy to come back. This is a good place to wrap it up. Lyle, thanks so much. What's next for Bose? I think that we're in a really exciting place, right? We talk about sound and um, great sound being at risk. So you think about, you know, we used to sit in our home or sit in our car and listen to music or watch movies in a very controlled environment. And now we're taking in content of all different formats, right? Some recorded on your phone in a quick video and some, you know, very professionally created. And we're consuming that content in all sorts of harsh environments. And so we're going to continue to innovate in these spaces around taking out the noises you don't want to hear, creating these great immersive lifelike audio experiences and playing with AI and helping you manage your environment with hearing the things that you want. And I, I think there's a lot of exciting potential in that space. And I think there's going to be a lot of cool stuff coming from Bose. That's awesome. Well, we will have to have you back for a full hour on Atmos in the home. <laughs> My virtual listeners will know how excited I am about that. This was great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks again to Lila Snyder for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter for as long as that lasts. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. And as many of you have noticed, if you tweet at me about Decoder, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Boxing Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. Is edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Winters, and our executive director is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.